Father, indeed, we want to be where you are. Indeed, there's something in us that just cries out, we got to be where you are. It's more than a want, Lord. It's a compulsion. It's a, it's a drive. It's a, it's a deep, strong desire. We cry out, woe to us if we're not where you are. We feel like Moses, Lord, who, who would not go into the land, would not go a step further if your glory didn't go with him. Uh, may, we, may we feel that way, Lord, unless you go with us, Lord. We, we don't want to take another step, we wanna, but we want to be where you are. Got to be where you are. We, we feel that longing, we feel that yearning because you've placed it in us. You've placed your spirit in us. You have placed this seed in us that, that, that grows toward you, that desires to be with you, to see you, to know your beauty, to taste your goodness, to bask in your glory. So, Lord, give us grace to continue the race until we're safely home, until we are with you where we were made to be. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have seen in 1 Timothy that the Bible describes the church as God's household. In other words, that the church is God's family, right? We are all so many brothers and sisters adopted through faith in Jesus Christ into the household of God. And as we said last week, when Christ came to save us, he, yes, came to save us individually and personally, but not only that, he came to gather us and to make of us a family, right? So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, this is really the most important thing you should hear in this sermon, is that God has sent his son, his unique son, into the world to die for your sins and raised him from the grave three days later so that you, if you would repent of your sins, that is, turn away from them, and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your God, you too will not only be forgiven of your sins and declared righteous, but you would be adopted into God's family as his son or daughter, right? So the, the gospel, the good news is, is wonderful news. It just keeps expanding on us. It's not just the good news that we are forgiven, but it's the good news that we are wanted. We are wanted as part of God's family. And he saves us from judgment, not grudgingly, but with great love, with great desire. That he would give his perfect son for imperfect people to make us his family. That's what we celebrate, and that's who we are. If we are Christians, we are God's family from so many walks of life, older, younger, black, white, Hispanic, Brazilian, Nigerian, I mean, you, you name it, from all over the world, from every people, God is making for himself one new people, one new family. And we want you to be a part. God wants you to be a part of that by putting your faith in his son and following him in that faith until we are together with him in his kingdom. So the language of chapter five, the word picture of chapter five, really is the word picture of family. So in verses one, verse one, treat older men, encourage older men as fathers, encourage older women as mothers. Verse two, encourage younger, or I got the verses messed up, but encourage younger men uh, as brothers, encourage younger women as sisters. This is family language, right? 
It's not just a metaphor. It's, it's what we are, right? It's a fact about us. So church life is family life, right? And so that raises some questions for us just by way of introduction. These are not the outline, but just by, just by way of introduction to frame our thinking. It raises some questions for us. How does the family of God relate to our families of origin? We all have natural biological families, but how, how are those families connected to or related to this spiritual family, God's household? And where does the responsibility for our natural family begin and end and where does the re responsibility for our spiritual family begin and end? How do those things connect? And does one take priority over the other? Does my responsibility for my natural family take priority over my responsibility for my spiritual family? Or is it the other way around? We are to care for God's household um, first and then care for our natural families. How do we fit that together? And if our natural families break down as they sometimes do, how can God's family help? Should it? Under what circumstances? Those are really some of the questions that are kind of running beneath this text in 1 Timothy chapter 5 as we come to the particular case of widows and how the church is to care for older widows in particular. If, if we're putting this sermon into one main point, we might put it something like this. That being God's family means taking care of our natural families and helping out those without natural family. Part of what it means to be God's family is to care for our natural family and to also care for those who are without natural family. It's part of what it means to be the church. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. As we work through verses 3 to 10, I want to work through five questions. Ask and answer five questions with God's help. Number one, here's the first question. Who is a true widow? Who is a true widow, right? That's, that's what the text says in verse 3. It says, honor widows who are truly widows, right? That may sound a little weird to us, because like, how you fake being a widow, right? Either that rascal gone or he ain't, right? So it's like, honor those widows who are truly widows. And biblically, a true widow, I think, is defined by about three or four things in this passage. Number one, of course, um, they, they have no husband, they have no spouse. The spouse has died. 
that's where we typically, that's what we typically think of as widows. And usually our thinking kind of stops right there. Spouses die, they're a widow. And that's true on one level. But biblically, notice in verse four that a true widow has no children or grandchildren. You see it there? But if a widow has children or grandchildren, the rest of the verse, let them first show godliness at home and show some return to their parents, right? The implication is, in terms of what Paul means in verse 3, by true widow, um, that, that would exclude widows who actually have children and grandchildren, who have living family with them. Here's the third thing, verse 5. A true widow, notice there, is left all alone. That's just making explicit what we drew from verse 4 there, right? She has nobody else. There's, there's, there's no spouse, no husband. There are no children to provide, to lean on. There are no grandchildren to lean on. Um, this is a woman who, in, in, in most every respect, is, is alone, is isolated, and therefore vulnerable, probably without means to care for herself in the first century world at that time. So that's who Paul has in mind. And verse 3 says, honor such women in the church. Honor those widows who are truly widows. But before we get to what that looks like, he gives us a a second question or or gives us a second statement in verse 4 that I want to turn into a question. And that's the second question we want to consider. What, What responsibility do we have for widows? What responsibilities do we have for widows? And notice what he says in verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now notice notice what's happening here. Paul is raising a question about a vulnerable group in the life of the church, in God's family. And he's raising the question of how do we care for these folks who are vulnerable in God's household? Now, notice he doesn't rush to, okay, church, you need a benevolence program or you need a widow's ministry or you need to just sort of jump in there and supply this need. Notice he defaults to family, right? That the responsibility for caring for widows are those children and grandchildren who are her descendants. But the family is the front line of of care and provision for the family. And this is by God's design. This is from the the very beginning of of creation. God has ordered things in such a way that, that, that children are raised and nurtured by God's grace, by a mom and a dad, uh, who care for them and provide for them. And, and as that family grows, there, there are grandchildren that come along. So those children provide for those grandchildren. We're used to thinking of it in that direction, right? Moms and dads provide for kids. But here this text is saying kids and grandkids provide for grandma and grandpa, right? You've heard the cliche probably, you know, what is it? Twice, once a man, twice a child. Once a woman, twice a child. So we, we are, in that sense, kind of children twice in our lifetimes, when, we, when we're actually literally children and we have parents caring for us, and when we are elders beyond the ability to provide for ourselves, and we have children and grandchildren providing for us. Once a man, once a woman, twice a child. 
And that all is, is, according to the Bible, sort of natural responsibility of the family here. Notice again in verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let him first learn to show godliness to their own household. Just to draw this out a little further, the, the biblical concept or the, the, the sort of biblical concept of household wasn't just your immediate family, right? It, it was grandma, granddad, it's also servants. It's a, it's a bigger concept than just the sort of um, Western American notion of the nuclear family. Now, this text, I think, is, is running contrary to our culture, right? So, so we tend to think that the mark of maturity is individual independence. We leave home, we go to college, we get a good job, we start providing for ourselves, and then we're kind of atoms in the world spinning around nothing, right? Not orbiting anyone else except ourselves. But the biblical concept is even when you consider yourself grown, you're still orbiting around family. Right, and you still have a responsibility to provide uh, for family, not just yourself. And th and that notion of providing for family is bigger than just the nuclear family, the spouse and your immediate kids. It is also your, your parents, your grandparents, your children, your grandchildren. So if we're going to have a sort of family view the way the Bible does, we're probably not probably we're definitely going to need a bigger concept than is typically in the minds. Of, of most Westerners, most Americans when it comes to this. So whose responsibility is? Well, it's the children and the grandchildren to care for um, their families. And, and what does that look like? What's required? Notice what Paul says again in verse four, that they show, they first learn. So there's something that has to be taught, right? So, so you know, Titus, when I get old, can't work. Got to look out for your old man. All right, <laughs> something that's got to be taught. We raise them in the way they should go, right? And then apply. So show godliness to their own households. That's part one. And then related to that, make some return to their parents. Now, I think the, both of these phrases are more or less getting at a very similar idea. Godliness is, is parallel to honor. The, co the command in verse three is honor widows, right? So godliness is parallel to the word honor. And Paul probably has in mind the fourth commandment. He's probably thinking now about the moral law. And the fourth commandment is what? Honor your mother and father, your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that your God, the Lord your God is giving you. Right? So he's probably got that in the back of his mind. Now, according to Jesus, and according to so much teaching in the Bible, honoring your parents includes providing for them financially. He's not merely, when the command to honor your, your, your parents, or in this case, to honor widows, it's not merely talking about respect. It's not merely talking about a kind of social honor, but he's talking about sort of financial provision as well. We can see this in Mark chapter 7. So if you keep your finger in 1 Timothy, turn with me to Mark chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. Jesus is in one of his many back and forward conversations with the religious leaders of his day. And they're after him about some commandment or another that they don't understand. And Jesus is telling them that they've got their own sort of traditions that are making the word of God of no effect, right? That's the context. Now, notice what he says in the context, how he, how he deals with them, Mark 7, verses 9 to 12. The Bible says, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. So he's quoting the fourth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother. 
and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So he's given the sort of the, both sides of that coin, positive honor. And if you, if you revile, then there's, there's capital punishment. Verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's saying, you heard the commandment, you should honor your father and mother. And then when he starts to challenge them about their practice, what shape does that commandment take? It takes the form of giving. They are supposed to be giving to their father and mother as a practical demonstration of honoring them. But they've got a whole tradition. They've kind of said, look, I gave at the office. I gave at the temple. I gave to God, right? That's Corbin. That's, that's dedicated to God. So, you know, mom, dad, you're on your own. And he's like, no, that's not the commandment at all. That's not the heart of the commandment at all. That's your tradition, which is making the word of God of no effect, right? So we're just drawn on this to see the illustration that honor is parallel with showing godliness, which is parallel with this notion of giving. It's what Jesus has in mind uh, when he talks about honoring our father and mother. So they are to show their godliness by caring for their parents. And they are to care for their parents, notice, by making some return to them. So children, college students, about a month ago, y'all got excited when I said your parents should be happy to give to y'all. Now, y'all remember that sermon. That's the only sermon you remember. Here now is the other side of that coin. You should be happy to honor your mom and dad by giving them some return on their investment, right? They have raised you for untold thousands of dollars. Some of y'all real expensive. Got grown folk taste, you know, got independently wealthy taste. And mom and dad have been very generous to you in raising you and providing for you and um, caring for you over years. Now, it's time for you, when they reach this age of widow or what have you, it would be time for you to care for them in return, to provide for them, <laughs> to provide for them in return, right? So there is inside the family, biblically speaking, this reciprocity, this, this give and return, this give and return that's meant to happen across generations right? Now, we, we often talk about generational wealth, but we conceive of that in one direction, don't we? We conceive of that of older pieces, persons leaving wealth behind for younger persons. But notice now, in the Bible, that generational wealth travels both ways, travels in both directions, right? That's what it means to live out the faith in our, in our families. And notice what, what's said here in verse 4, for this is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. This is the second time Paul has used that phrase back in chapter 2, verse 3. Remember when he was telling us in chapter 2 to pray uh, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all dignity and, and godliness, uh, for this is pleasing in God's sight? Same thing here, right? That peaceful and quiet life that pleases God uh, is, 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 is just like this life here of caring for our elders, that, that pleases God, that is good in his sight. So if you want to know what God's will is uh, as we care for each other, Part of what pleases God is that we would have a, a special reverence and, and honor and support given to the elders among us, to the widows among us. Y'all tracking with me? 
All right. So let me ask you then, for all of us, and, and, and the younger you are, I think the more important this is, the older you are, the closer you are to doing this, but I think it's important for young people to think it so that you have a longer runway. So here's the question. Do you have a parent you should be honoring with financial support? Do you have a parent that you should be honoring with financial support? And do you have a plan for doing so? Right? So in all of your planning for the future, in your retirement planning, in your investment planning, I, I hope you'll have something in there called parent planning or grandparent planning, right? Setting aside monies, sending monies home to honor your mom and dad. Now, Chrissy and I stumbled on this, so I'm, I'm not holding it. I'm just using this as an illustration, not holding this up as a perfect illustration by any means, because we didn't have this teaching. Um, we didn't sort of know that this should have been rooted in the Bible, but we stumbled on this. We, we were young, married, maybe in our first four or five years of marriage. Um, my mom had had a couple of strokes and was unable to work. Her, her dad had retired, and we were like, we should be sending money home. College Foundation getting all our money from these student loans. There was no president talking about forgiving student loans, and, and we had no break. We were like, we should be sending money home and, and caring for our parents just a little bit. We didn't have much. She was a school teacher uh, in North Carolina at the time. I think your starting salary, we was we were dancing a jig, man. Her starting salary was about $22,000. Um, we thought we was rolling in it, bro. My first job out of college was with a nonprofit. I think my first salary was about $17,000, right? So, yeah, brother, my wife made more than me, and, and I wouldn't, that wasn't no problem at all. No problem at all. We needed the $22,000. And we just thought we should be sending money home. And so we, we, sent, we sent $100 a month home to our parents. Wasn't a great deal. But, man, they felt honored. They felt honored, felt cared for. I don't know how many times they were like, that little piece of change helps, <laughs> you know? I, I think of our brother, Pastor Dennis. I just look over him in the Washington family. You know, his, his mom lives with him, right? Uh, he's, he and the family are doing precisely what's here in this text. They are living across three generations in that house caring for each other and providing for each other. I know, there are, I know there are others here who do the same. And so I just want to encourage us to, to do this intentionally and prayerfully and have a plan for it, uh, just as we plan for so many other things, right? This responsibility falls to us as children and grandchildren first. You with me? All right. Question number three. Well, how important is this responsibility? How important is this responsibility that children and grandchildren care for uh, the widows in their family? Well, I think that's answered uh, in verse 8. Jump down there with me uh, to verse 8. There Paul writes, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So there Paul again makes explicit that he's not just talking about the nuclear family. Here he uses the word relatives. If you don't provide for your relatives, right? And especially your household. So you got to take care of your immediate family first, but there's to be a concern for the extended family too. If he doesn't do that, notice what Paul says. A person doesn't do that. Notice, notice the, the, the sort of implications then in verse eight. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The strong words, aren't they? The strong words. What, is, what does Paul mean here? Well, sometimes when the Bible uses faith or the faith, it, it's referring to faith in Jesus Christ that leads to justification, right? 
Other times, as in this text, when the Bible uses the term the faith, it's referring not just to our profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but the whole way of life that we call the Christian way of life. That's what Paul has in view here. And so he's saying here, now listen, if you don't care for your widowed mom or, or, or grandmother, uh, even though you have the means to and the responsibility, then in effect, you have denied the faith. You've denied the whole Christian way of life. You have denied even that profession you make to be following God, to be following Jesus. Now notice he didn't say you have a weak faith. He didn't say you have an incomplete or an imperfect faith. The word there is stronger. The word is active. He's saying by your uh, refusal or by your failure to provide for your parent, your widowed parent, you have by that action actively denied the faith. You've contradicted the faith. You, you have claimed something by your life that is other than the Christian way of life, that is other than what God requires us as early as the Ten Commandments and all the way through now the New Testament church. That's how important this is. The home becomes the theater for the display of genuine faith. If you don't live your faith out at home, you ain't really living it out anywhere, right? If, 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 if the home is where the rubber meets the road and, and something as practical as whether or not we support our parents, it's how the faith is displayed. And we're not doing that, then, then we are, for a different reason, what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians, which is loud symbols making noise, which is loud gongs making noise. We just, we're just out here maybe talking about Jesus, but, but our very lives are not confirming what we're preaching in the most intimate and important relationships that God creates. So he said, you're denying the faith, and then notice, and are worse than an unbeliever. Right. So it's not just that, you know, you kind of messed up your profession a little bit. It's like, yo, bro, you took like five giant steps backwards. Right. Because the way God has wired the world, the way God has created society, family is a creation institution. It's right there in the early chapters of Genesis. So even people who do not know God do family. They take care of mom and dad, right? You can go to all kinds of societies that are not Christian societies, go to all kinds of people who are not Christian people, and because the moral law of God is written on the heart and written on the conscience, they do things that are often required by the law, like care for their parents. So when someone who professes to have the light of Christ and the knowledge of God's word doesn't do something that even pagans do, We make ourselves worse than unbelievers, right? That's how important this is. It's central to the authenticity of our profession of the faith. It's central to what the Christian life looks like. It's central to our evangelical witness, right? Caring for our family, to put it positively, speaks well of our profession of faith in Christ. Caring for the family speaks well of the gospel. And doing that on levels that exceed those who don't believe is part of what makes the gospel and the Christian life attractive, right? And so he's calling us into this because this is, this is crucially important. Now, again, I hope that you can see a few things about Christianity. 
Number one, Christianity takes the physical life seriously. We, we are embodied creatures, right? As embodied creatures, we have physical needs like food and water and shelter. And Christianity is not some kind of disembodied new age spirituality where you sort of act as if the physical doesn't matter and you just, all that matters is the spiritual. No, we, we, are, we are as human beings, both body and soul. And, and we are meant to care for both body and soul. And that gets expressed practically in how we care for family and how we care for each other. I, I hope we can also see that Christianity uh, is not only embodied in that sense, but that Christianity, uh, we, we have to reject anything resembling the kind of individualism that cuts us off from family, that cuts us off from our responsibility to family, right? Well, I won't belabor this. We were saying this earlier, but but we are we are, by God's design, connected to mom and dad and grandma and granddad and child and grandchild. Uh, we're, we're meant to sort of keep that, that, that tapestry woven together in practical ways. And so the notion that we are just individuals doing our own thing, well, that's really what the Bible defines as sin, isn't it? Each of us just going our own way, doing our own thing without regard to God's design, right? Well, this also means then that we have to reject anything that resembles a throwaway culture where older people are concerned. We, we do live in a society that increasingly has no place for older people, right? And in a society where I think, uh, whether it's conscious or not, we, we often have a sort of out of sight, out of mind attitude toward older persons, right? And so we, we have to be careful that, that we are not sort of given in to that, that sort of cultural um, influence, that we're not sort of treating elders as, you know, seen but not heard, uh, or maybe even better yet, not even seen and not heard. We, we don't throw people away in Christianity, young or old, for each person is made in the image of God and has unique and exquisite value because of that, right? Which means, I think, in terms of application, verses 4 and 8 should make us think really carefully about when and whether we use retirement facilities, for example, right? Those can be great blessings, particularly in cases with like full-time acute needs, right? Where someone's a harm to themselves or can't, can't care for themselves and, uh, and, and we may physically have the inability of caring for them, right? So, so don't get me wrong. That can be a great decision, hard decision in every case, but it can be a great decision for a family. I'm just cautioning us against rushing to that decision and being motivated by a kind of selfishness or motivated, motivated purely by our own convenience, right? That needs to be a, a slow, prayerful decision. Now, it could be that the way we financially care for and honor for them is by paying for such a facility, right? That, that might be the, the best legitimate way for us to care for someone. But it might be that we would be better off, quote unquote, inconveniencing ourselves the way mom and dad inconvenience themselves for us and caring for mom and dad and having the blessing of three or more generations in the same home, right? Grandkids knowing their grandparents and receiving that wisdom. Kids knowing their parents receiving that wisdom. Those who are older being honored by those who have come after them. 
So we want to think carefully and prayerfully about that. Amen? Fourth question. How important then are widows to the household of God? So we're seeing here that Paul says, listen, the the first line of responsibility is really the, the, the family itself, right? Let me back up and say one other thing about that. I think the, the, the other sort of application we want to make of that in principle is this, that um, when people are experiencing need, the first place to go is not the church. The first place to go is to the family. And the first response of the church is not to try to fix the need. If we're going to take this verse seriously, the first response of the church ought to be to engage the family, right? And, and I get it. There's lots of brokenness in families. Things are kind of hard in families. But, but this, is, this is what leads me to believe that if the church just sort of, without engaging the family, steps in, tries to help, provides a need, et cetera, they, they do some good in that, but they may not be doing the most fundamental long-term good. More fundamental and long-term might be to help that person reconcile with their mom or dad, Right? might be to help the family understand its responsibility to to live in this way so that in the long term, the family itself begins to be healthier, begins to be rebuilt, uh, begins to function the way God has designed it, right? So the better long-term outcome is that we as a church be invested in the well-being of families, not just invest in the temporary relief of families. Does that make sense? Now, those aren't mutually exclusive. You could do both. But, but again, the instinct here is the first response needs to be the default to family. And the first response of the church ought to be to try and help and strengthen family rather than replace it. You tracking with me? All right. Now, fourth question. How important are widows in the household of God? Well, we see that in verses 5 to 7. The answer, let me give you the answer real quickly. They are a model of what should be true of all of God's people. Widows are a model of what should be true of all of God's people. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now, what what Paul says about widows here, I want to suggest to you, is, is actually something that is exemplary for the entire family of God. This is what makes me think that Paul is is really raising up widows here as role models, as people who are not just in need, but people who are also needed, right? Um, We see that in three ways. Number one, notice what the widows uh, exemplify. They set their hope on God. They set their hope on God. Let your eyes look back at chapter 4, verse 10 where Paul there is talking about the apostles and pastors as he instructs Timothy in his duty. Notice what he says there about them, that they have set their hope in the living God. Pastors are not to be the only people who model that, right? There are other people in the congregation, hopefully all of us, who should be modeling that. And widows are particularly sort of um, situated in life to be a model of setting their hope on God of trusting God when you have no one else. Her devotion is to Christ. Um, they put all their, their hope in God, and that's, that's what every Christian is supposed to do, and, and that's what every Christian needs a model of, right? 
And if we don't have a throwaway mentality about older persons and a throwaway or, or kind of I feel so bad for them mentality about widows, but really honor them, then, then they begin to shine forward as examples of what we're all called to live out when it comes to hope in God. Who, who demonstrates that more than someone who has no family, no means, and is all alone, yet keeps following Jesus? Here's the second thing. While they're exemplary, they're devoted to prayer. She continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Again, remember back in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, where Paul talks about he wants us to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Chapter 2, verse 8, where he talks about he wants men everywhere uh, to live hands in prayer uh, without anger and without quarreling, right? So here now, the widows become examples of what he has exhorted the whole church to do. The whole church is to be committed to prayer. Well, who's praying more than the widows whose only hope is God? She's praying night and day, depending upon God. And beloved, I, 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 I want you to know that if you, you want to know how to pray, I mean, you can ask your, your pastors. Hopefully, we're all men of prayer. And, and you can look at someone in your small group who, who may be, you know, seems to you sort of fervent in prayer. But if you really want to learn how to pray, go approach an older saint. Go approach a, a widow who's been walking with the Lord longer than you've been alive, who, who's just got so much heaven, collect, uh, so much prayer collected in vows in heaven, right? Go learn from them. That, that's, that's who is soaked in prayer over many years and has learned to wait on the Lord, right? And so the widow is praying this way. And, and interestingly, the New Testament gives us many examples of, of widows being sort of examples to us, models to us of prayer. Luke chapter 2. Remember the prophetess Anna? Anna was waiting on the Lord. Luke chapter 2, verses 36 and 37, tell us that Anna uh, had married as a young woman but only was married seven years. Then her husband died. She becomes a widow, becomes a widow. When we see Anna in Luke chapter 2, she's 84 years old. And she's in the temple praying, waiting on God, worshiping God. That's the model. Or, or think of Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. Jesus, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask Jesus to teach them to pray. And Jesus tells them a parable. He tells them the story of the persistent widow. There's a story about a woman who's a widow. She has no other family, and she has an enemy. And she's trying to get justice with regard to her enemy. So she goes to this judge, the Bible says, who neither fears God nor fears man. He don't care about nobody. And remember this story. She just keeps going to him, keeps going to him, keeps going to him. And finally, he says, you know what? This woman going to drive me crazy unless I give her what she wants. And so, and so he does. And Jesus uses this story about being persistent in prayer. It's a story about a widow. So often widows are sort of raised up in Scripture as, as sort of icons, as models of prayer. They are in need, but they're not needed. They require the support of their family or their church, but they're not burdens to the church. They are people who exemplify the best in God's household. They're spiritually minded. They're spirit-led. These true widows become the mothers of the church in so many ways, according to verse 1. Now, here's the third thing they model. See it there in verse 6. There's a contrast 
It talks about true widows in verse 5, then in verse 6 it says, refers to those who are self-indulgent and dead while they live. It's ironic when it comes to sexual desire, older people, you may hear older people say something like this, I'm, I'm old, I ain't dead, right? I'm old, I ain't dead. That's the way of saying that they, they still have that desire. That desire is, is still alive and their age is no hindrance to that desire. They're even suggesting that that desire is an indication of life. And in one way it is, but, but verse six actually turns that proverb on its head, turns that sort of saying on its head. Verse six indicates that if a widow is self-indulgent, that is, if she gives herself over to her desires, if he gives himself over to his desires, if he or she lives according to the flesh and not according to the spirit, yeah, they may have that desire, and that desire may be an indication that something is happening there, but, but, but they live according to the flesh, then they are the ones who are actually dead, spiritually dead, because they give themselves over to that, that desire. So Paul now is holding up true widows as spirit-filled people who know how to live with self-control, who know how to live with chastity, who know how to take possession of their bodies and their desires and to aim it at Christ and the things of the Lord. So in that way, true leaders are probably the church's best teachers of modesty and chastity. I mean, think about it. They have known a spouse in the biblical sense. They, they know what it is to, to know someone in that way and to have that desire and to have that desire on some level satisfied, at least during the course of their marriage. But now they're called into a season to live with control over that desire. And the true widow does that and becomes then an example of, of how to do that and a, and a wonderful resource to persons who are maybe younger and, and fighting those desires and those urges and, and needing to learn how to live with self-control, how to live with modesty and chastity. In an age of hypersexuality, we, we need true widows to be our teachers, don't we? To be our teachers and examples in this critically important area of, of life. So widows are meant to be honored and they are important among us because they are mature, experienced models of hoping in God, praying without ceasing, and living chaste, celibate lives. These are people we should spend time with. These are people we should learn from. Which brings us to our fifth and final question. Last question. Well, which widows should be helped by the church? Which widows should be helped by the church? Look with me in verses 9 and 10. And Paul writes there, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and have a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work here. So three things here. Well, first of all, notice that the early church is keeping a kind of list. That's what Paul means when he talks about enroll. Let them be enrolled. Let them be added to the list of widows that the church now takes official responsibility to care for. Well, to get on that list, there are three things that should be true uh, of the widow. Number one, they should be at or over 60. I, I realized last week I asked some people to stand who were 60 and over. Or I, I think I said more precisely who are over 60. 
and someone who shall rename nameless <laughs> thirst um, said that I didn't say 60. So he stayed seated. All right. So if you are 60 and over, <laughs> right? if you are 60 and over, right, that's the first qualification. Oh, it's interesting. We, um, I, I did a little homework this week. Um, we often talk about the, the sort of the, the average age, the life expectancy in our day being longer than it was in the ancient world. And so I just went to look for some, some footnotes, some evidence of that. And I was surprised at what I found, I, particularly a, a very helpful article um, from the BBC. Actually, that proves not to be the case. The reason that we often believe that is in the ancient world, infant mortality was much higher. And in the ancient world, people were more likely to be killed in wars or by plagues and disease and things of that sort, right? So if you're now just averaging ages, then you're going to get a lower age range because of that. But if persons survived infancy and they weren't killed in a war or something like that, then typically they live to be about the same age that we live today, right? So when Paul says, let them be 60 or over, uh, it would be tempting for us to think, oh, they probably lived about 63, and then, you know, this, this problem kind of ain't a problem no more. But no, actually, actually, uh, if you lived to be that long, there was a good chance you were going to live to be 75, 76, 77, about the same age that we live now, right? So Paul here now is sort of saying, listen, we, that, that last quarter of life, the sort of late years, post sort of workability and those kinds of things, that widow is to be added to the list, is to be sort of a mother to the church, and the church is to be her children and grandchildren, to care for her, to honor her in that way. Here's the second thing. It says there that uh, in verse 9 that they should be the wife of one husband. It's there Paul is using the same qualification that he's using for elders back in chapter 3 when he says that the elder should be the, the, the husband of one wife. Uh, it's the same, same word, same idea. It's a, it's a one spouse person. So these are people, not necessarily who were married only once, uh, but these are people who, when they were married, kept covenant, kept, were faithful to their spouses, um, lived as, as, the, as the covenant would require. And so the idea is, is not that she was, again, married only once, but that she was faithful. And you could see that in her marriage for as long as she was married. And then here's a th third thing. Finally, in the church, a widow, again, like the elders and the deacons, must be respectable. So the, by, by the time she's 60, her life must be a gospel testimony of grace and love toward others. Notice there, it says in verse 10, she must have a reputation for good works. Good works is her calling card, right? Her name comes up, and she's kind of like Dorcas. Remember Dorcas? So known for doing so much good that when she died, the church was just weeping, showing the apostles all the clothes that she had made and things of that sort, right? And, and so the widow is meant to have this same kind of reputation. And Paul gives a list of things there. These, I think, are meant to be examples. They're not exhaustive. Um, but these are the kinds of things that um, go into uh, sort of his definition of, of good works there. Look, look with me in verse 10 uh, of chapter 5. Uh, he says, having a reputation for good works, then you get a colon, and then the examples. She's brought up children, right? She's shown hospitality. She was, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, right? So her life has been other-oriented in everything from raising her own children, who by this time must have died before she did, 
right? To caring for sick people, to showing love to strangers. That's what hospitality means, right? So, so the bounds of her generosity, again, weren't limited to her own family, but it flowed out even to strangers and did all kinds of other good works. This becomes a vision statement for, for our older members, doesn't it? You, you don't, your usefulness in the kingdom is not over when you hit retirement age. And you don't have to wait to retirement age to be useful to the kingdom. And this ought to be encouraging to young moms, right? Your raising your children counts in God's sight. So when Christians start talking about being superheroes, we got to go out there and do all this stuff for Jesus, and we got to take this mountain for Jesus. Okay, that's great, but go home. Raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Honor your wife. Honor your husband. Send money home to grandma, right? God's keeping track of that. Every nasty diaper, every runny nose, right? Every extra hour of overtime to buy shoes for the kids to go to school. Every braided hair, every conversation after midnight when you want to go to sleep, but they're worked up about some teenage drama or middle school drama or college drama. It all counts. It all counts for your reputation before God and you're being honored among God's people. Right? So, beloved, I, I just want to encourage us not to sort of look over, overlook the, the ordinary grace that's at work in our lives when we're doing things that feel like we're punching the clock or nobody notices. My, my wife used to use an analogy for um, housework that, that I think was, was apt and, and helpful and good. And I think a lot of the things on this list would apply to this analogy, right? So having people in your home and, you know, caring for others, it seems like it never stops, right? She used to talk about housework being like putting pearls on a string with no knot at the bottom. You know, just keep, <laughs> she got an amen. <laughs> you just, you just putting those pearls on there and it just seems like you just keep putting pearls on there, right? Well, all those pearls fall in God's lap. Keep stringing them. Keep putting them on there. Keep doing the ordinary, unnoticed things, oftentimes unnoticed by our own family, that God notices. That's an honorable life. It's a life he means to see blessed, not only in eternity, but with his church. And in the end, when we are done with our days, may our children rise up and call us blessed. May they honor us. Praise God for family. Praise God for the natural family. Praise God for the family of the church. Let's end with this thought. It may be the case that we have not ever thought much about the church's responsibility for widows. Right? Most of us have probably been members of churches that didn't have a widow ministry didn't have a, a list of widows as such. But I don't, I don't, maybe that's just a measure of how far American Christianity has drifted from biblical Christianity. And I say that because 
the first ministry listed in the book of Acts after preaching and teaching is in Acts 6. It's the care of the widows, right? This is why we get the seven chosen, Stephen and all those guys, is to make sure that the distribution to the widows was happening equitably and ha happening efficiently. The New Testament church took this very seriously. So much so that James could write in James 1.27, many of you will, will know this passage, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Isn't that striking? He didn't say religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to go to Coffee and Convo and share the gospel on Monday morning. Though that's a wonderful thing to do. He didn't say religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to preach sermons of about 50 minutes. Though that's an okay thing to do. He didn't say religion that is pure and undefiled before God. It's even to go to the mission field or to plant churches or do a lot of things that we rightly care a lot about. Religion that is pure and undefiled, that's taking care of that old lady sitting next to you on the pew who has nobody else or that child in your ministry program who's lost their parents. God has a special regard for the vulnerable, young or old. And if we would be true Christians, if we would have a faith that is pure and undefiled, then we would be a church that cares for them. Let's pray together. Father, we pray, give us this pure and undefiled religion that visits the orphan and the widow in their distress and that keeps us unspotted from the world. We would be both of those things, Lord. We would be helpful and holy. We would be kept from the world and we would be close to the vulnerable. Give us grace to do so. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would prove our faith by the care of our families. The time we spend, O oh Lord, with one another and especially the way we honor our elders, the way we care for the vulnerable in our families. Let, let us do that, O oh Lord, as a demonstration of our faith. And let us do that as a demonstration that you have made a difference in our lives to such an extent that we are set apart from unbelievers who do the same thing. So, Lord, we pray, be at work in our lives to care. Be at work in our lives to honor. Be at work in our lives to give and support practically. Do this for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.